Hi, I'm the Strategious Cowboy. Today, we are going to review two lagers, a normal ABV IPL and a local lager. They are in order. Tasty Trout Hazy IPL from the brewery, the Uncharted Brewing Company in Eslev, Scania, Sweden. And the second one is Jubileum Festbier from the brewery Lundabryggeriet in my hometown of Lund, Scania, Sweden. But our first contestant this week is the Tasty Trout Hazy IPL from Eslöv in the region of Skåne, or Scania as they say in the English-speaking world, in the south end of Sweden. This beer is brewed by an immigrated Irishman. We have had beer assortments from the Uncharted Brewing Company before on this show. The ale assortment contains water, malted barley, rice, hops, and yeast. Hmm, interesting. Rice beer. I've heard of sake, but rice as an ingredient in beer? How odd. The hops are from the US and they are Hercules from wherever and Nelson Sovin from New Zealand. New Zealand is the homeland for several cultivated hop sorts. This beer assortment is unfiltered. This particular beer is good until March 2022 according to the best before date on the can. The Tasty Trout Hazy IPL assortment comes in a standard 33 centiliters or about 11 liquid ounces can. The label features a jumping trout about to catch a dragonfly above the water. The beer costs about 30 Swedish krono, i.e. 3 US dollars and 30 cents. That is one US dollar and 20 cents per four ounces of beer, which is expensive for a lager, even if it is an Indian pale lager. The preferred serving temperature is according to Sustainblog, eight to 10 degrees Celsius, i.e. about 46 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. The brewery says the same thing on their website about preferred serving temperatures. Tasty Trout Hazy IPL has got a 5.6% ABV. How about the experience then? Let's just... uh... Measure the temperature first. If it's even any use of doing so. About 7.7 degrees, 7.4 degrees Celsius. 8, 8 degrees 
perhaps something like that. It's, it's not consistent, this uh, measuring tool from, from uh, Bosch. It's not at all consistent. About 40, 45, 46 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's, uh, yeah, that's uh, about correct. But it's not consistent in any way. It shows different temperatures for each time you press the trigger. You pull the trigger. And, um, oh, okay, how about the, did I say that the tasted trout hazy IPL has got a 5.6% ABV? Anyway, how about the experience then? This beer has got a, certainly I got a, a tall head, almost six fingers tall. I mean, six fingers, almost, or five. But anyway, that's, uh, uh, that's uh, very foamy. And I, I haven't even poured up more than half the beer or even that, perhaps not even that. The color of this beer is, it's clear, it's very clear, it's light yellow, lighter than urine. Light yellow, whitish almost, clear as well, I can see the lines on my fingers, clear. Through the glass, not the fingerprints, but uh, the contours or whatever you call it in English. It got a nice aroma, but it's a lot of foam on it, on the a lot of uh, foam on the beer. So it's a little bit uh, difficult to smell through the foam, but the foam smells too. Has got an aroma, but it's okay. It's very good. Well, my first impression is that it is a little bit weak. Not watery, but a little bit weak, perhaps. Ah, uh, yeah, I've tried 3.5% beers. That's got more um, more of a body than this one. But it doesn't taste bad. So it's not very rich. I don't, uh, perhaps. Uh, 
I don't think it's bread-like. I wouldn't say that it is. So, uh, okay. Uh, is it yeasty? No, it's a log or so. No, it's not. It's malty. Or perhaps not. Perhaps it's a um, hoppy. I can sense both hoppiness uh, and maltiness, but... It's hoppy, uh, it's quite hoppy on my palate. It's uh, not exactly sweet, no. It's hoppy. It's not candy-like. It's a large head even now when I poured up the rest of it. About uh, three or four fingers tall, three, three and a half. Sorry, let's turn this one off. Uh, is it fruity? I wouldn't say so. No, I wouldn't say there are any particular spices in it. I mean, beer can taste spicy. It doesn't necessarily mean that there are spices in it. I've learned that anyway. Uh, I don't sense any herbs. The undertone. Well, it's bitterness. And the carbonation level, we'll see. It's not creamy, but it's not acidic and there are no aberrations I, I can sense. Maybe rice beer isn't, um, even if it's not completely only rice in it, there are um, barley um, malted barley in it too and probably more of that than rice but I um, I don't think I like if every rice beer every beer with rice in it tastes like this I wouldn't buy it very often. Uh, no, I wouldn't. Uh, 
it's straw like a bit. Uh, okay. That's about it, I think. Okay, what about grading then? How many devils? Well, I, I'd grade this beer. Five devils out of 10 possible. So it's a, it's an average beer on the market. But um, I think I graded another beer there. Uh, what was that beer called? Like uh, the, let us see here, the Tasty Trout Hazy IPL uh, from, uh, uh, let's see, Un the Uncharted Brewing Company. I think um, the Uncharted Brewing Company had a beer called, uh, it, I, I, I'm not sure, but it was a raven on it. And I think it got a little bit better, a little bit higher grade for me. Grading for me. But uh, this one, I wouldn't buy a rice beer necessarily again. And I, I can understand why people or breweries don't make rice beers that it's not usual it's not common in any way and i can understand why if, if everyone tastes like this but i think i graded uh graded the, the former the the beer i tried i don't know when i tried it but it was a while ago i think i graded it better than this one so uh, maybe it's just uh, the rice beer, the rice in the beer that doesn't make it so good. Or it makes it not so good. Well, I think it is the rice. Anyway, let's uh, move on to the second beer. Our second contestant for today is the Jubileum Fest beer from Lunda Bryggeriet, also an old acquaintance of ours. The ingredients in the Jubileum Fest beer are most probable water, malted barley, hops, and yeast. Standard ingredients, that is. But I can find no information about this beer assortment on the brewery's website. The information on the bottle says that the ingredient hops are of the American sort Cascade and the German sort Magnum. But the hops are cultivated here in the region of Lund. The malts are of the types Skonsk Pilsener malt and Sour malt. They are also cultivated very nearby Lund. It isn't a Jule beer, but they have a similar looking Jule beer on their website. 
this particular beer was good until December 2021, according to the best before date on the bottle. Today it is uh, January the 21st of 2022. But it has been standing in my cooler for the whole duration since I purchased it about a year ago or so. The Jubileum Festbeer assortment comes in a slender bottle. The bottle is size 33 centiliters or about 11 liquid ounces. The bottle's label is one-folded and yellow-green with a golden circle framing the brewery's name on the bottle. I can con conclude that this beer assortment costs about 24 Swedish kronor, i.e. 2 US dollars and 60 cents. That is one dollar per four ounces of beer. The preferred serving temperature as a light lager is probably 8 to 10 degrees Celsius, i.e. about 46 to 50 degrees Fahrenheit. Jubileum Festbeer has got a 5.8% ABV. How about the experience then? It's about 13.1 degrees Celsius, and that's about 13.1 uh, degrees, 50 degrees, 51 degrees Fahrenheit. Let's see here. Uh, it uh, doesn't fit very well with what it should be in Fahrenheit, but. Uh, it's a it's a crappy Bosch instrument. I'm sad to say, I, I I would I would have expected it to work better than it does. But well, anyway, the experience. Got a nice aroma, uh, orange amber like color, a little bit feculent, uh, orangey in color. Wait a minute. Yeah, orangey in color. And it's got a one and a half finger tall head or two fingers tall head.
nice aroma um, if I can smell it first impression yeah it's a good beer that's my first impression well is it rich uh well it's richer than the former beer mm. it's uh multi Mm -hmm. It is. It's Mortonness is the taste of my palate right now. It's a little bit, uh, perhaps not sweet, but uh, not not sweet. Yeah. Still a little bit hoppy. It's not candy like. Mm. It's a little bit fruity. Peach-like, orangey-like, uh, and uh, I think uh, that's it. Or, or maybe mango-like, peach-like. I think orangey-like is most uh, most uh, accurate. And uh, there are. Um, Some spices, perhaps. The undertone is quite spicy. On the carbonation level, I don't know yet, but uh, I can say that the former beer had quite a, a large or, or strong carbonation level. But this beer, I don't know yet. Uh, Creaminess, no. Hmm. Well, that's about it. 
It's not acidic and there are no aberrations. It's a good beer, better than the former beer, but uh, that might have to do with the, the former beer was a rice beer, partly a rice beer. But this beer, what, okay, what about grading then? How many dairies do I grade this beer? Pretty high carbonation level, perhaps. Uh, um, um, excuse me for that one. I agree this beer. Seven or eight tables out of 10 possible, uh, but which? It, it, uh, it tastes more bitter now as I've been drinking it for a while. I think I'm going to grade this beer seven devils out of ten possible. So not so high up today for the beers we have reviewed. But um, not bad beers, especially not this last one. Okay, absolutely don't drink and operate heavy machines, military or civilian. Drink responsibly or not at all. Don't drink at all if you're underage or pregnant. This week's lesson I call the Afghanistan Doctrine. Peacekeeping is not a job for soldiers, but only soldiers can do it. Quote Dag Hammarskjöldi. Professor Emeritus of International Law and Teacher at the Defense University, NN said in an interview with the journal Focus that there was a gray area between criminality, terrorism and civil war in Afghanistan. He said this to circumvent the fact that Sweden was involved in the same war as the United States to avoid any discomfort for Sweden as a state and of course for his and his family's own part and for the Defense Academy's part. I do not intend to say whether I think this is right or wrong. I intend here only to point out the contradictions in such a position in a hypothetical situation with significant Swedish losses in human life in the now former conflict in Afghanistan, where Sweden participated. All international conflicts Sweden participates in militarily are based on a UN mandate 
but that does not make the activities in foreign countries less of a war if the majority of the warring countries, military units and governments called it a war and lived the war. Some called the Afghanistan war a civil war, but US involvement made it a war, right? Was it a civil war seen with Swedish eyes and a war seen with American eyes? Ennen went on to say that a Taliban shooter would be arrested by Afghan police and prosecuted by Afghan prosecutors or by Swedish prosecutors if the crimes were directed at Swedes. NN himself said that the unclear jurisdictions hassled it up for him, or rather he said, it's a tangled situation. I believe that it should be military prosecutors who upholds the laws of war, who investigate wild shootings with fatal consequences, if it is even necessary to investigate. It can be upsetting for the victims' families to learn that the bullet that killed their son or daughter was Swedish, when no one is interested in or assisted by knowing it. Only when it comes to suspected serious misconduct it could be of interest to sort out the causality for such a shooting. To initiate a preliminary investigation, as Chief Prosecutor Christer Pettersson at the International Prosecutor's Office in Stockholm did, according to the Criminal Code, into the deaths of two killed Swedes, when the crime was committed in another country and it was generally accepted that we were not a combatant in the civil war, seems only to be a puppet show. Because either we were a warring party and the deaths must then be investigated in Sweden, or we were not a warring party and the crime must then be investigated and prosecuted in Afghanistan. It should be acknowledged that the reason why they chose to start an investigation in the first place was that there were suspicions that the fatal shots could have come from the Swedes' weapons. And the punishment for this crime is more than four years in prison. Would any Swede, would any Swedes have been convicted if it turned out that the killing bullets came from one or more of our weapons? No, evidently not, because the investigation showed that it was probably Swedish bullets that killed the two Swedish soldiers, but no legal actions followed. Although the result of the investigation was disputed, perhaps for reality political reasons. But according to what the chief prosecutor Christer Pettersson said, before the investigation was completed, it could be difficult to find someone to prosecute for the killings because the designated perpetrator, the Taliban, was dead. What was it now? Should we hold a trial against perpetrator profiles or should we investigate a Swedish wild and fatal shooting? The answer is that Christopher Pettersson 
acted as a direct result of the political discussion about the fatal wild shootings. But his intentions failed because all common sense says that we should have a military court in war, but we do not. Had we had a military court in war time and we had called the Afghanistan war a Swedish war on behalf of America, this situation would not have come to be. As it is now, the politicians said that we were not at war, and therefore illogicalities emerged in the system as the armed forces approach converges directly against the civil judicial system's practice in these rare but extreme and fatal incidents. The system is not realistically adapted to the different authorities' divergent practices. The Americans know how to grind a grindstone because they have long-standing experience of wars. We should learn from them. In addition, it was inconsistent to call it a civil criminal investigation and not prosecute the Swedes who shot and killed the alleged perpetrator with murder, if we as NN claim were, were not at war. NN called the action expansive self-defense. The lack of martial laws enforced by the military is evident. So was the lack of courage, courage from politicians who did not dare to call the war a Swedish war, even though they considered it to be an American war. In the Riksdag, it was still frequently repeated that Sweden has not been at war for 200 years, even though Swedish UN soldiers in the Congo were, wore Swedish uniforms and fought successfully for our values in the 1960s. Just as Swedish soldiers protected civilians and fought in former Yugoslavia, Afghanistan, and now they are fighting in Mali. What should future historians and archaeologists think about Sweden and the Swedes of today when there are no monuments, monuments that speak about war, but remnants, remnants of battles with mainly Swedish equipment can be located by archaeologists in different parts of the world? What is showing aggression worth? As a Swede, you get the impression that the Americans value aggression in their soldiers far too high. Aggressiveness can certainly be good under the right conditions, but it leads you into trouble more often than it helps you cope with different difficult situations. For when do you achieve success by showing aggression if you cannot simultaneously respond to e.g. Taliban or Vietnamese tactics effectively, to take some historical examples? Do not the tactics and combat techniques of an enemy have to be analyzed and solutions implemented in the education doctrine before any aggression is shown? Well. Yes and no. Operational superiority 
that the Americans have had in their modern wars means that their own side can gain an advantage, although this presupposes that it is possible to deploy cruise missiles and close air support slash attack helicopters. Infantry weapon systems with massive effects, such as the FGM-148 Javelin, also helped to win any war. It was not the fault of the Americans that they did not seem to be able to decisively win the war in Afghanistan. The defender had one great advantage. It was their country. The sub-factors that it was the Taliban's country that gave them several advantages in that war are not difficult to pinpoint. In short, the Taliban knew their own people and could at times hide among them, and they allowed themselves to terrorize civilians if they did not get their way. The Americans contrasted with their law of armed conflict, LOAC, and they could not expel the locals in a purgatory war. The Taliban also knew their land and could act camouflaged in defensive positions in an ambush. The Taliban could set IEDs. It was not advisable for the Americans to do so. When the Taliban were not in the area, e.g. because of the winter season, the Americans could not win if they did not plan to stay in the country forever. When the Americans are no longer in the area, the Taliban have won. That's all. But wait, maybe they plan to stay in the country for a very long time. To quote Wikipedia, the United States Geological Survey is actively surveying southern Afghanistan for rare earth deposits under the protection of United States military forces. Since 2009, the USGS has conducted remote sensing surveys as well as field work to verify Soviet claims that volcanic rocks containing rare earth metals exist in Helmand province near the village of Kanishin. End quote. They estimate that there are 1 million tons of reed, rare earth elements, there which is quite a lot. Re is used e.g. for lasers and electronics. Is that why the Americans fought so fiercely over the Helmand province? To finance the war to some extent? Or at least seize war materials? It's the same game that goes on throughout history. The one who controls the raw materials and the trade routes is the master of the plot, and thus it is he who gets the last word. Albeit, the Americans left Afghanistan before they could extract any rare earth elements. They left for future oil supplies through starting another near-future war against Iran. For the record, imagine how easy it would have been to win and gain ground in Afghanistan if we had engaged in medieval warfare, just as it was relatively easy for the Germans to advance on the Eastern Front in 1941. 
There is nothing else military that is as difficult as discerning insurgents from civilian population and neutralize them without harming the civilian population and without having any real front line, especially when the insurgents are hiding among the civilians. It seems to be not one task, but a thousand small and some large tasks through many conversations with the locals. In addition, there is usually a gray area or some cooperation between the civilian population who do not carry weapons and the insurgents, plus and often included armed criminals. There may be another factor of uncertainty. Government forces that have revolving doors for insurgents into their organization and that do things, how should I put it, haphazardous. They often indirectly risk the lives of Swedish soldiers unnecessarily. Mujahideen should be glad that they did not have the Germans from the Eastern Front in 1941 against them, because then they would have to starve to death if they had used scorched earth tactics and expulsion of the entire populations of multiple villages. Demographic map pictures concerning ethnicity, religion, clan relationship, rebels, and their strength and movement patterns. Anyone who possesses such a map, such a map image, does not have to hand over to the next contingent with so many unnecessary words, which in any case cannot be snapped up or memorized in detail. Then you would not have to empirically learn from your own experience who is engaged in asymmetric warfare and where and how. A learning that is hazardous and takes time if you're new at the game to the game. With experience, you can go far, but with planning, you live longer. One can add to the map images that rebels suspected weapon systems and armament. Here, Militära Undersökningstjänsten, MUST, can help from the home front by figuring out where the insurgents get their weapons from and what type of weapons the insurgents have. If you play every morning the simplest war game based on previous enemy attacks, empirical, topographical map images, possible drinking water reservoirs, most recently used weapon types, presumed clan affiliation for the rebels and surrounding villages, it will be easier to create a pattern of enemy movements and thus plan your route on site in the conflict area. As far as future and contemporary missions, such as perhaps Mali are concerned, research on ethnicity, etc., should be carried out even before a decision has been made in the Riksdag to act. But be careful what you wish for, because it might come true. Thank you, and see you later, alligator, at a wild crocodile. Oh, thank you.